was paralyzed by fear when they heard a mighty multitude was quickly drawing near. But as they prayed for deliverance, the victory wouldn't begin. Cause when you call upon the Lord, you're summoned all of heaven. Pray on, for you are who the Lord is looking for. Pray on, let's just tear those mighty strongholds down. Stay on your knees, for this is where the battle is won. Very soon you win the victory. When Daniel faced the lions for worshiping my Lord, it seems there was no hope at all for what would be in store. But when you stand on holy ground, your smallest prayer is heard. Instead of on our circumstance, our eyes are on the Lord. Pray on, for you are who the Lord is looking for. Pray on, let's just tear those mighty strongholds down. Stay on your knees, for this is where the battle is. Very soon you win the victory, pray hard. When your questions go unanswered and your prayers may seem in vain, they don't seem to make a difference, they don't seem to make a change. Just rest assured, God knows your needs and He hears each time you pray. Your prayers are reaching heaven, and the answer's on the way. Pray on, for you are who the Lord is looking for. Pray on, let's just tear those mighty strongholds down. morning everybody great day isn't it you know Christians all over the world
have all agreed that the Bible is completely and totally relevant in our broken world. And one of the books of the Bible that I am currently studying is the book of First Peter. It's been the focus of my study now, and it will be for about four or five months. And talk about being relevant. First Peter, so much needed in the first century, appears to be timeless. It's timeless in speaking to suffering Christians then as well as today. And I've been blessed. And I trust I might, in some small measure, convey this book's message as well as some of the passion with which Peter writes. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the book of First Peter and we'll read the first 13 verses. Beginning to read at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories, plural, to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And may God bless his word to us. Let's just pray just for a moment. 
Father, we thank you for these words that Peter wrote down. And may these words come alive today in a way in which perhaps we have not considered them before. Bless us, O Lord Jesus Christ, in these hostile days in our world. Bless this congregation of your people. Visit us with your presence in a powerful way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One Bible scholar wrote this about 1 Peter. There is hardly any portion of the Word of God which has been more eagerly read than this epistle, especially by those who were pressed with many trials and weaknesses. And others, too, who read this epistle for its comfort include exiles in distant lands, by persecuted and suffering saints, by those with sicknesses, and others who are incapacitated. It makes me think of the church in Iran. Dick Papworth, in one of his latest newsletters, tells us about believers who had been thrown into prison, where they were beaten so badly that a good number of them died. Where church lands and buildings have been confiscated. And where the parliament today is set to pass a law that makes conversion to Christianity a capital offense. I googled the word persecution in my computer. And this is what I discovered. Seven countries in Africa where Persecution is rampant, big. It doesn't mean that some other countries are not persecuting, but these seven countries are terrifically hostile to Christians and the word of God. Fourteen countries in Asia. Twelve countries in the Middle East. And on and on it goes. In the United States, Christianity, as you know, is mocked, ridiculed, and marginalized. And uh, we could well write a book entitled The 21st Century Book of Martyrs. And this brings us back to the book of 1 Peter. In verse 1, we have listed five provinces which are located in the country we know today as Turkey. And what will Peter say to the believers who throughout this book are called pilgrims and aliens and strangers and scattered and homeless, those without a home? What was he going to say? What will he say to encourage these dear people? And believers are constantly exposed to a world system that is energized by Satan and his demons, and their effort is to discredit the church and to destroy its believability and integrity. And one of these, one way these spirits work is finding a Christian, or Christians, whose lives are not consistent with the word of God, and then parading them as before unbelievers to show what a sham the church is. Christians, however, must stand against the enemy and silence the critics by the power 
of a holy life. And since the believers addressed in this book were suffering escalating persecution, the purpose of the letter was to teach them how to live victoriously in the midst of that hostility, without losing hope, without becoming bitter, while trusting in the Lord, and also while waiting for him to return. And how is Peter going to bring hope and peace to believers who may be distressed because, as verse 6 tells us, their faith was being tested by fire. And the fires of persecution were burning hot in those days, as they are today. What Peter does is wonderful, as he reminds these believers and us what a Christian is and where his true hope lies. And I would like to think of four things that Peter mentions. First of all, this world is not our home. We're pilgrims. We're aliens. We're foreigners. We're strangers. We haven't settled in. We're looking as Abraham, as he says in the book of Hebrews, that we're looking for a city which has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. And that city that has foundations, no hurricane or earthquake or tsunami will shake the foundations. It will stand safe and secure. Now, this world may not welcome us or receive us or embrace us, but notice what Peter tells these dear suffering saints, that what the world will not do, God will. I have chosen you, he says, in verse 1. And the word chosen or elect means to select, to pick out. And here in our passage, this, the word is used as a term for Christians, those chosen by God for salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit. How can we tell if we're chosen? F.B. Meyer suggests a simple test. He says, notice the words of John 6, 37. All whom the Father gave to Christ come to him. The chosen will be attracted to Jesus Christ. And as steel filings Move to the magnet, we will be attracted to our Lord. The test, do you love the Lord? Do you love his people? Do you love to gather regularly with his people? Do you desire to serve him? Do you feel the pull drawing you to Christ? Do you feel that pull? Yes, these are simple tests, but they can assure our hearts that we belong to him. Now notice to what we are chosen. We're chosen. We're chosen for something. We're chosen for a purpose. To what are we chosen to? Notice verse 2. We are chosen to obedience. We are chosen to obey. We are chosen to serve. We're chosen to learn. We're chosen to suffer. We're chosen to die daily that others might be blessed and saved. You know, chosen stars shine. They illuminate the night. Another thing in verse 3, Peter blesses God. 
Please notice what for. He blesses God for the believer's new birth, resulting in a living hope of our imperishable inheritance. So he blesses God. And we too, I'm sure, can join in blessing God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And would you say this with me? Blessed be God. Would you say that with me? Blessed be God. The believers were facing persecution and trials, and I'm sure it was encouraging to be reminded that their hope and future was not dependent on the stock market, government solutions, bailouts or handouts, wealthy parents or winning the lottery. And Peter tells these Christians that their inheritance is absolutely certain. It is imperishable, it is undefiled, it will not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. And that's where the believer's true home is. So I can hear Peter saying, be encouraged, dear Christian. Be encouraged. Our inheritance is reserved. Isn't that great to, to remember that? Well, what is the nature of that inheritance? What's that inheritance all about? There have been many and different descriptions given it, like salvation in all of its fullness and completeness. We'll, we'll get that, too. There is heaven with all of its beauties and the removal of the things that trouble us down here. You know, no more tears. No death. No mourning, no crying, no pain. We could also add as part of that inheritance God's gracious and glorious companionship. However, I believe there is a deeper and more comprehensive view than any of that, though I believe that we will get all of that which I have mentioned also. Consider with me a verse from the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 18 and verse 20. And there the Lord says to Aaron, who represents the priesthood, you shall have no inheritance in the land, nor own any portion among them. Why? I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. There's the inheritance, folks. At the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, we read, and so shall we ever be in heaven? Well, yes, but not really. That's not the point of the verse here. Shall we forever be in our mansion? No. We shall forever be with the Lord. That's our inheritance. Again, let me put it simply. Our inheritance is God himself. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And Peter is telling the suffering Christians how to look past their trials to their eternal inheritance. Now I want to look at that just a little bit more deeply. And we have in verse 4, we learn that this inheritance will be there. It's reserved in heaven for us. This means that that inheritance will be there. It's reserved. It's in my name. And the big words I want to impress on us are found in verse 5. 
who are kept or protected by the power of God. And this is awesome. This inheritance is going to be there in heaven. And verse 5 tells me, I too am going to be in heaven to receive it, to enjoy it. I'm going to make it to heaven. How? Let me repeat. The believer will be there because we are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation. We're protected by the power of God. And you know the word protected or kept has its roots in an army post or garrison. It is translated kept in custody in Galatians 3. It's translated guard in Philippians 4. It's translated as garrison in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And in each case, it describes an armed force used as a sentry, as an escort duty, a defensive fence or enclosure. We're kept. And this is not just any ordinary uh, guard. We're kept by the power of God. It's not any ordinary thing. The power of God surrounds the believer as a bodyguard in this dangerous world. So Christians, be glad. Be happy. God is our shield. He's our high tower. He's our strong deliverer. He's our protector. And in him we are secure and our inheritance is secure because we're protected by the power of God. And no one can steal the Christian's treasure and no one can disqualify him from receiving it. Have any of you ever gotten weary of the struggle? I have wondered about believers in Iran and in Turkey and India, in the Philippines and in other places, in Laos. I've often thought of a man by the name of David Brown. I don't know whether you know that name or not. He's in prison in Turkey. He went there as a worker from Albania. But uh, yes, he's in a prison in Albania, excuse me. Well, he went to Albania to help, to start a ministry among the orphan children. And simply because he was a Christian in jail. Innocent, but in prison. His trial has been postponed many, many, many times. The judges during the month of August took off. That's their vacation. So for the whole month, nothing could happen. The judges were on vacation. And I wondered about David Brown. How does he handle it? How does he handle it? Knowledge of our secure position and inheritance brings about rejoicing, even though the dear Christians of Peter's day were distressed by various trials. And Peter teaches us several important principles about trials or troubles in verse 6. And I'd like to mention at least four of those principles 
with regard to suffering Christians, and I'd like to say again, suffering saints, be encouraged. First of all, troubles do not last forever. Did you notice in verse 6 the words, a little while? For a little while emphasizes the short duration of all earthly trial as compared with the eternal reward. You know, a little while over here and eternal reward there, there's no comparison. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And then Paul further says, the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Number one, troubles are for a little while. Number two, trouble serves a purpose. The text says, if need be, or if necessary, verse 6. Suffering may be necessary in our lives. It may be for our well-being. It may be useful to help to purify us. You know, it's true that the pain still is there, still endures. The grief and perplexity may still remain. But Peter, in chapter 3 of this same book, writes, it is better, it is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right. And the word in our text translated distress is the Greek word perasmos, and it means undeserved suffering. Not just suffering, undeserved suffering. I think of my father being fired from his job simply because he dared share his faith with his fellow workers. And of course, it was okay for them to tell their dirty stories. And think, too, of the suffering caused by the martyrdom of the three believers who recently died in Malatia, or Malatia, I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, in Turkey. Undeserved suffering is happening in many places throughout the world. And the third thing, we find introduced again the purpose for the grief or distress, the various trials of verse 7. And you have there a very interesting word in verse 7. The Greek word hina, H-I-N-A, is translated in the New American Standard Bible as so that. So that. In other words, we could read this verse, you have been distressed by various trials so that, that's a purpose phrase, so that the proof or genuineness of your faith may be demonstrated. God's purpose in allowing troubles is to test the reality of one's faith. When a believer comes through a trial, trusting the Lord, still trusting the Lord, he is assured that his faith is genuine. And we shall be more than compensated for all of our trials when we see how they have ended with a far more exceeding weight of glory. 
And Peter tells these suffering saints in verse 7, as pure gold put in the fire comes out of it proven pure, so genuine faith put through this suffering comes out proven genuine. To go through the fire and come through it, our faith is proven genuine. When you think of Daniel in the lion's end, when he came out of it, his trust in God was proven genuine. And God, too, was vindicated. The last thing I wanted to cover this morning is I want to look at the wonder, the encouragement of salvation in verses 8 to 12. I think what Peter's saying here is reflect again. Reflect more deeply how great this salvation is that awaits all who have put their faith in Christ. You know, salvation is, is a big word. It's a wonderful word. And it tells us that there is a great reality awaiting us at the coming of Christ. Verse 8 was true when Peter wrote this little letter, it's true today. They didn't see Christ, and neither have we. But we love him. No, we haven't seen him, but we believe in him. And we rejoice with a joy that cannot be expressed in words. Can't express it, can't explain it. regardless of how big or how small my vocabulary is, can't tell you all that it is. Why? Because the result of our believing, the reward of our trusting, as one translator puts it, our total salvation. Everything we know about salvation fulfilled, completed. And when will that be? The end of verse 7 tells us at the revelation of Jesus Christ or when Jesus Christ comes again, we shall see him and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And Peter says that these corruptible, Paul says that these corruptible bodies will be changed and be like his body of glory. Now that's some salvation. To be transformed in that manner. Wow. Wicky, they see me then. Wait till I see you. That'll be great. Yeah. Peter continues in verse 10. The prophets told us this grace was coming. The Old Testament prophets, that is. And they asked a lot of questions about this great gift of salvation. This salvation was something the prophets did not fully understand. And the prophets had an intense longing to understand more of the great gift. So they made careful search and careful inquiries about it. They wondered what the Spirit of Christ in them was telling them when he spoke of the suffering of Christ and the glories that were to follow. That's what they were, they were not expecting that. 
Instead, they were expecting a conquering Messiah to come and to throw Rome into the Mediterranean Sea. The prophets wondered when and to whom this would happen. And notice verse 12, they were told that these things would occur during their lifetime, would, would not occur during their lifetime, but during the lifetime of the suffering saints that Peter was writing to. They were not too far removed from the time when Jesus walked on this earth and the time when he gave his life on a cross outside the city. Verse 12 continues and tells us that the good news was preached and the message of the prophecies fulfilled. All of this so wonderful and so marvelous that the angels in heaven longed to know more about it. Here are these people who stand in the presence of God and they wanted to know more about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They wanted to know more. Don't you want to know more? Amen, I sure do. Therefore. Therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself what it's there for. Right? Therefore, verse 13. In view of what Christ has done, how are we all to react to that? But Peter tells us in the balance of the chapter that we're to live differently. Our conduct is to be transformed. And I'd like to mention four things among many others which Peter gives us in which our conduct is to be different. First, verse 13 tells us literally to gird up the loins of our mind. I know that's good old King James English, but it's, it's correct. This is a wonderful metaphor or word picture. And the picture is well suited to the men of the Middle East who wore long gowns, which were gathered or tucked in with a belt so that the loose garment would not interfere with the person's activity. And the equivalent picture today would be to roll up your sleeves or take off your coat. And incidentally, the girdle or belt, according to Ephesians 6, is truth. We must begin to act as those who mean business. And note that this gathering of a loose garment occurs in the mind. Did you notice that? Gird up the loins of your mind. And so we know that's a picture of something. This gathering occurs in the mind. It suggests be disciplined in your thinking. We need to be careful what we allow to affect our minds, what affects our thinking. We are to be totally ready when Jesus returns. A second thing in verse 13, we are to be sober. And the picture here refers to moral alertness, as in our speech, 
and in our conduct. It describes, again, a life of discipline, self-control in contrast to reckless behavior. Again, all of this in view of Christ coming, coming back. And in verse 13, 14, we are called to obedience. We are not to be conformed to the old pattern of doing things where we were just doing whatever we felt like doing. The text, interestingly, says we were doing these things in ignorance. And I like the way the message, the translation called the message by Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, you didn't know any better then, but you do now. And in view of the fact that you do now, live differently. Fourthly, in verse 15 and 16, we read, like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The new standard for living for the Christian, the true model to be copied is nothing less than God himself. We are now to be, as the text says, you shall be holy, imitators of God as beloved children, to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, to reproduce the family likeness. That is the pattern and the goal of our calling. Is that a high calling? Absolutely. But our God is a high God. And I thank God for that Holy Spirit within us that gives us enabling. So, dear suffering saints, Paul, P Peter would say, fix your minds on the great salvation God has provided and live as those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Because the day is coming when we will say to the clerk at the desk, I have a reservation here. I have a reservation here. I have an inheritance here. And I'm here. And God will welcome us. He will welcome us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. What a delight it is to, uh, to read and to and to think with Peter all that you have done and are continuing to do as we live our lives day by day. Elect and chosen of God, born again, uh, an inheritance, undefiled, reserved in heaven for us, protected by the mighty power of God. Lord, uh, these are things that we try to put our minds, wrap our minds around them, and yet we find ourselves coming short because your salvation is a so great salvation. Bless this dear company of your, of your people, Father, here at San Ramon. And Lord, help us to be found with our minds girded 
sobering. Help us, Father, we pray. Thank you for your presence with us today. And we pray now that you dismiss us with your blessing. For we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.